0: To a new episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest this week was suggested by a previous guest. What a curious web we weave uh, connecting people all around the world. Um, Today, from Scotland, it's Lynn. Lynn, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hello, Nick. Thank you very much. It's it's great to be here. And uh, yeah, I'm Dr. Lynn Wilson. I'm a specialist in the circular economy and clothing. I'm a entrepreneur and a researcher in consumer behaviour and clothing circularity.
0: That is a long list of specialities and titles and reading your CV, I can tell that you have been up to quite a lot of various stuff. Can we delve into your background a little before we get on to the main topic.
1: Sure, yeah, thank you. So I um, so I studied as a textile designer, constructed textiles, uh, which is a really lovely course in Scotland at um, Duncan of Jordanstone College of Art in Dundee. It doesn't exist anymore, but it gave me a really good grounding and knit uh, weave and also fine art tapestry. So a real wide appreciation for textile design and then I, I did a, an MME at Nottingham Trent University, which was very much about fashion and textiles and commerciality. And after all of that training, about six years of training, I really knew that whilst I loved um, uh, textile production and I specialised in knitted textiles, uh, I really didn't want to go into commercial industry and I wanted to keep creating, but... Uh, I think even that was in the sort of 1990s. By the time I'd finished my education, it was sort of 94. We were in a very, another uh, UK recession. It was a challenging time. I come from a small town in Scotland uh, in the West Coast uh, that had been traditionally a textile town. And I think the week I returned was the week the last textile factory closed in 1994. So, uh, yeah, there was the opportunities to work in the industry were very much pushing you towards uh, international uh, waters. And I was already beginning to question the industry. I was already beginning to question um, the mass uh, mass manufacturing. And I'd never really been a, a high street consumer, even when I was um, particularly at art school. We had, back in those days, you had the fantastic um Abundance of flea markets and uh, secondhand shops that still back in the day had these gorgeous wool coats, um, and jumpers, and, and things that were uh, our heritage uh, textile were very much uh, available in abundance. So I didn't feel the need to shop on the high street. But uh, I then evolved my career to be able to work freelance as a swatch designer and also my own collections at the same time as teaching. So uh, in the early days, I taught in further education um, in crazy places like even in a high-security prison where I taught uh, art and design and, um yeah, mainly art and design. But from there, I, I went to work internationally. And I, I think the core with my... Uh, professional life experiences, people, I'm really interested in people and I've always been really interested and curious about what people are wearing and what people are doing and what's going on in the world and how you pull together um, social social economics of the world with art and design. So I went off to um, sub-Saharan Africa to Botswana and I lived there for five years. Uh, setting up textile production units in vocational training. And that was funded by the, the UK government, by the Department for International Development. But in my final year there, I uh, finished my contract and I worked for a year um, going in and out with uh, an Indigenous tribe called the Narosan Sand people of the the Kalahari Desert and they were an indigenous people who had been pushed off of the land uh, because the government wanted the land for diamond mining and tourist license, tourism licensing and so my role was to support their uh, socio-economic development by introducing new textile skills so that they could produce textile products for the tourist industry so i i taught the basics of um, textile design in terms of colour um, and pattern motif. And that was really an eye-opener for me. I left there in 2000 and that was a real eye-opener for me about scarcity of resources in the world. Uh, Botswana is 87% Kalahari Desert. Um, the water is um, domestic water and industrial water supplies are very challenging because the water course has been um, uh, misaligned from Botswana or um, redirected, sorry, all of the water courses have been redirected over the decades over history um, to to um, place that water somewhere else. So things like uh, press, precious earth resources really challenging. And so when I came back again, I think I was still really focused on that uh position of how creativity supports um the social change of a culture because the Bush uh the, the Narosan um Bush people were an egalitarian society and they um for example if the they were traditional hunter gatherers and so as hunter gatherers They would um, uh, hunt for an animal uh, for their community and then every part of that animal would be used um, to feed the tribe but then the parts would be used, dried out, the skins would be used for clothing, for uh, other products, the bones would be used to carve uh, different traditional uh, tools or Um, products for the home and so it was just an incredible experience to see how a society and to reflect on that 20 years later how our society how far some people would say how our society has evolved uh, into this product society that we have now where we just go and buy everything we want. We don't have that labour of going out and foraging Whilst the men hunted for the meat, the women were foraging for the seeds and the grasses with the children. So it was a very community, uh, closed community of survival, really. Um, Whereas by introducing the idea of making a product to sell, you're then introducing a capitalist society through, uh, again, this whole link is about textile and textile product. And so... Part of my job was to um, teach people how to make uh, design tea towels and bedspreads um, produced by people who don't actually own those products themselves. And this is a um but this is a, a global phenomena. If we think about textile production, uh, which is mainly in the global south now, and when we look at uh, manufacturer um workers in garment factories they will have a very different lifestyle and a very different home from uh, consumers in the West. And so that's a really interesting and uh, phenomenon in itself that uh, the the producers of the clothing that we wear, of the textile, uh, live a very different societal life from the one that we do. And... Uh, Yeah, I I think for me, that is at the heart of the matter of where we're going to go with society and clothing and textile and the issue of sustainability and my core field, the circular economy. How do we really marry up our socioeconomic systems of community and living and uh, with our capitalist society of consumption and easy access to whatever we want.
0: So you came back from Africa quite a changed person with a new outlook.
1: Yes, I did, thank you. Yeah, I did. And uh, uh, it was also really difficult transitioning, transitioning from having been in that world, having been in this vast desert, to coming back straight onto the high street and all the uh, temptations of the high street because I love fashion and I love clothes and I am always, uh, as I say, I, I'm always the consumer that I'm trying to change because I love consumption and I'm born into it and I can see how we need to change. I know how we need to change and I know the change needs to start with me. Uh, but I... Yeah, I ended up back in the UK and realising so many different societies in the UK also needed this support with um, product development, with um, the power that comes from creativity. And I started working with different groups and I worked with um, different organisations, again, in textile design and production with um, organisations working with homeless people, with uh, women in crisis with um, uh, communities in Scotland that were um, so socioeconomically challenged, where art design and uh, creativity can really empower people. So back to that that sort of common thread that my golden thread of connection is always people. And so it's about yeah working with people and creativity and knowledge about textile. Because if you've never made a textile before, whether you're painting it or weaving or knitting, that whole interaction of actually creating uh, gives you so much power. You are so empowered when you make your own textile and then you connect it to what you're wearing. And that connection is really powerful and I think where we are so disconnected in society. We are so disconnected between what our clothing um where our clothing comes from, what it's made of. Uh, even, <laughs> even the choices that we make as consumers, I don't think we really know. I don't think we know a lot of the time we're subconsciously or subliminally buying clothing that we're not really sure why. We we know we want it to serve a purpose, whether that's aesthetic or practical, but because we don't know what that whole product uh, it includes, what's what are all of the materials, all of the ingredients of that one product? It's a bit like food. With food, we've worked so hard on labelling, so hard to uh, get consumers to understand. Um, sorry, to raise a. To raise a consumer awareness of what is in our food. And we almost, we do need to do the same for clothing. But in both of those product areas, consumers need to be educated in the first place. And this is a key challenge is that um, we don't, we're not taught anymore, particularly, well, in the UK curriculum, young people aren't taught about um, fibre technology or home economics or these basic skills. And so then they become consumers who are sort of pushed out into the world with no real knowledge of what they're buying. So with that passion and frustration for um, the sort of social empowerment, I then actually went to work in policy. And I realised that Uh, I I wanted to uh, almost challenge policy. And if you put a creative in a policy team, you just don't know what you're going to get. And uh, I set myself a challenge and it was probably quite challenging for the organisations I worked for. Uh, I worked for an organisation in Scotland called Planning Aid for Scotland, PAS, and that engages people in the town planning system. And that's again about creativity and and engaging people in a creative way the language of planning is very heavy it's not really set out to be very democratic and it's about in terms of being impenetrable for uh, for citizens for consumers and so it was really about um uh, getting consumers involved in the planning system and b- being more democratic and all the time I was doing this, I was still producing and still working freelance as a textile designer and being able to have my own uh, textile outlet um, in a commercial sense. And all of this came to a full circle when uh, I moved on to work for an organisation called Zero Waste Scotland, which is Scotland's uh, agency that supports the Scottish Government to um, with Initially with Scotland's Zero Waste Strategy, but then um, when I joined the organisation, we were just moving on to researching the circular economy. And my role was as the the textile sector manager for Scotland, so working with the Scottish textiles industry to introduce the circular economy, to introduce what it meant uh, in a textile perspective, and to support the industry to uh, evolve to be more sustainable and circular. And within that role, I worked with, um, at that time, Zero Waste Scotland were under the umbrella of WRAP, the Waste Resource Action Programme, uh, which was a whole UK programme. And so as part of that uh, programme, I worked on the Sustainable Clothing Action Plan for the UK, which was a, a brand-led initiative uh, that involved um, everyone from the Arcadia Group, Next, Whistles, um, Marks and um, John Lewis, to look at how they reduced their carbon energy and water footprint in the manufacturing of clothing and fed in their data every year as to how they were reducing um, the carbon energy and water in clothing and how they were diverting uh, pre- in, uh, h- sorry how they were in, how they were diverting industrial clothing waste from landfill so every time we manufacture a garment depending which research you read it can be anything from 15% to 40% waste in the manufacturing of an industrial uh, garment and so what the Sustainable Clothing Action Plan aimed to do was also support brands um, to reduce the the manufacturing waste side and also um, other areas within the supply chain. And the consumer side of that was a campaign called Love Your Clothes and we launched Love Your Clothes in 2014 at the same time as uh, the Sustainable Clothing Action Plan had been launched a little bit earlier. And the Love Your Clothes campaign, uh, is a website and a portal platform for sharing knowledge and information about how to, um, about the longevity of clothing and how to keep clothing in use for as long as possible. And it was really about trying to get those brands on board. And we worked closely with John Lewis. And this was way back in 2014, working with John Lewis on introducing repair, um, stations in John Lewis stores and supporting consumers too. We worked with a fantastic textile designer called Shirley McLaughlin and Shirley and, and Harrod McLaren and both of those designers worked on methods of engaging the public in uh, textile repair and mending and um, even simple things like sewing on a button. So if you had consumers who would have they had no idea where to start. Just those simple skills like how to sew on a button are so um, necessary but also empowering because potentially if you've never sewed on a button and uh, sewn on a button, sorry, if you've never sewn on a button and then you do it, it can spark that uh, excitement for trying something else. But if you haven't done it before, perhaps, These ideas, and it sounds so ridiculous because perhaps you and I, Nick, maybe we take that for granted that both of us can sew on a button. We're really interested in clothing and textiles. These are things we take for granted. We don't think that, um, I know for me, all of this, all of this interest was sparked by my grandmother who taught me from a very early age. I think she gave me my first pair of knitting needles at four. You know, she taught me to knit. She taught me to sew She taught me uh, what a fibre was, and all of that sitting by her knee. But these days, uh, I'm not sure that children have that family heritage of textile and clothing. Uh, Perhaps some do, and in my research I have seen that uh, happening. But I don't think it occurs now as it once did a generation or two generations uh, before. And so this idea of engaging the public, citizens, consumers uh, in clothing repair and reuse is very in vogue right now, but it's something that we've been working on for a long time. But that was an amazing programme and after three years uh, at a policy level, it was decided that we'd Done enough work on that at that time. And uh, I moved on to uh, a different uh, portfolio, mainly working in technology. So, looking at augmented reality and 3D industry 4.0. And that was really interesting in terms of how new technologies can help us um, look at product design, be it a garment or um, a a product as part of the aerospace supply chain, um, augmented reality and virtual, or augmented reality in industry 4.0 is so important for the future of um, sustainability. But in all of this work, the key thing that was missing for me was consumer behavior. So we have all of this knowledge, but we don't know really what consumers are doing and consumers from a policy level are also still being designed for or the policy is being designed for them, not with them. And I was getting really frustrated by that because I really wanted to understand what are consumers doing? And there's a terminology called cognitive dissonance where we... um, want to uh so we believe in one thing and we really sort of know that we should consume less, but actually that's not what we're doing. We're consuming more or we're going out shopping of a day and thinking, you know, I really don't need anything and I really shouldn't buy anything else. But you go out and you get tempted and you come back and you feel guilty because you've bought that new dress or you've bought that new sweater. But you couldn't help yourself, and so this idea of cognitive dissonance is really interesting to me, and that's why I decided to give up my job and uh, do a full-time PhD at um, the Adam Smith Business School at the University of Glasgow, where I've been for the last five years researching uh, consumer behaviour, and um, but maintaining my practice as a as a business consultant. Um, to enable me to work fully in a circular economy space. (laughs) Okay. As you said, Nick, people don't get the chance to talk about themselves ever.
0: No, but that's good. That's fine. I did wonder, because it's interesting, you were leading um, initiatives that were brand-led And so much of the time, the brands are kind of putting the responsibility over on the consumers, but you were actually getting brands to at least pretend to be thinking forward and thinking better. Nowadays, we're talking so much about greenwashing. I mean, was there a genuine intent among the brands you were working with to actually do something better or... Could you say that they were just sort of um, pretending?
1: I um, I think what I learned from the Sustainable Clothing Action Plan and engaging with brand representatives was the level of skill and knowledge and expertise that everybody who represented the brand had. So they had the top textile technologists, textile experts working for them, and as individuals they were really really committed to making those brands more sustainable, to coming up with solutions but all of these brands are corporate businesses and you can have the best people in the world uh, coming up with solutions at the end of the day it's what happens in the boardroom that matters to business and so I thought I think that's a really interesting area that brands are pulling together top teams with these expertise, but a key challenge is, is the boardroom listening? And is the boardroom willing to change or looking for greenwashing solutions? And whatever way you look at it, it's going to look like that. And I've noticed the real debate um, the last few last week when um, the founder of Patagonia announced his new initiative of uh, giving away his whole three billion and making the the brand Patagonia uh, a trust, charitable trust. And the backlash from that in terms of everyone saying, yeah, but most of the clothing is polymer based, it's polyester. So, you know, what's the point? He's just creating more stuff in the world, putting more uh, chemical out there. So it doesn't matter what he does with the brand, what the brand business model is. If they're still producing all of this toxic uh, clothing, then what good is it doing? And I think that's really interesting because we've got to the point in society where in the West, 60% of the clothing we wear is polymer-based. And that... Again, it goes back to, for me, why I wanted to undertake research. And that's about understanding what we need as consumers. Thinking back to my experience of living with the hunter-gatherers in the Kalahari Desert and their lifestyle, their egalitarian lifestyle, and applying that to society in the West, what do we need clothing to do? So, for example, a polymer-based um Waterproof jacket uh, in the winter time. If we have one really good, designed for life, waterproof jacket, and it's polymer based, that can be a good thing. But if we want uh, clothing that's be- the clothing that's better for our skin, some layers of clothing that's on our skin we want a natural fibre, of course we do, of course we want a cotton of course we want um, wool things that work with our body, that are antibacterial that help us to breathe of course we want that, but we've reached a situation where all of these resources are at different levels of availability and also how we've become familiar with them and it's how we uh, educate and work together to shift that balance. We're not going to turn off the tap. And it would be a real challenge if we did turn off that, uh, that fossil fuel tap. But if we can transition to uh, new clothing systems. So that jacket, that really expensive Patagonia or another brand uh, outdoor jacket. We should all have access to that, but we don't. Depending on our socioeconomic status, we might have something that looks similar, but it's only, uh, you know, retailed at a tenth or even less than that of the value of the Patagonia jacket. And it's only going to last a season and it's going to rip and it's not going to keep us dry. And this idea that we don't all have equal access to the same garment. Instead, we have this vast mass of garments, really, really cheap garments that don't do a job. So they don't do the job, so we have to bin it and buy something else within our budget. Is where we can really start to think, how do these new clothing distribution systems like renting and leasing, how do we get those brands on board Uh, those big global brands on board with this idea of equity, clothing equity. How do we create clothing equity through leasing systems, through rental? At the moment, these new concepts of leasing and rental in clothing are still very much focused on that aesthetic, very much on party clothing or um, formal wear. But how do we get these systems operating in a way that's beneficial for society? Those, This idea of clothing equity, where we all have access to a really gorgeous Harris Tweed winter coat that's going to keep us warm for those 12 weeks of the year that we need it. But then at the end of that period, it gets passed on to someone else who's actually now facing a a, a winter whereas we're going into spring so we then need maybe we're going into to you know a spring where it's sort of seasonal changes we don't need a heavy winter coat anymore we need that lighter waterproof jacket so instead of The challenge that consumers have of we have all these different, if we're lucky, if we are in that socioeconomic demographic where we can have all of these different garments in our wardrobe, that uh, we have to store. We have to store when we're not using them. And when we're storing them, someone else isn't using them. But if we have these new systems supported by brands that really understand not what they want to sell in the boardroom, but understand what's going on in the family home or the individual home to provide a service. So as society, we really need to be able to say what we want clothing to do and then be able to push these brands to give us what we want, not what they're at the moment uh, giving us. What They're giving us what they think we need, and we are being quite subservient. We are being subservient consumers, instead of giving us these options and taking us on that clothing journey. And it, it I mean, it should be a societal shift, and it needs, uh, it needs, and it needs attacked from all different levels: education, capitalism, but it needs a whole. Secular approach. And at the minute, what we see is the linear retail system or the re- linear supply chain up to the retail system where the consumer ends up with the product. So we end up with all of these resources and then it's our responsibility to get rid of them. And that then determines whether it is a resource or whether it's rubbish. As consumers, we're not skilled resource management specialists. We're, we're just trying to solve the problem of keeping ourselves dry, warm, cool, protected. And so to give us that responsibility without any tools, that's really challenging and that leads to problems.
0: That's very some very interesting ideas there. I've not heard before the idea about, say, shipping your jacket around the world so people can use it in different zones. The, the sort of one point I keep coming back to when I'm listening to that is, is there still a profit in it for the for the companies? Because that must be what sort of determines how on board they are at the end of the day.
1: Hmm. So, in theory, there should be. And because it's still the same amount of critical mass of people that need a garment to service their need. And so if that garment is made of quality material and it's robust enough, then it's about quality over quantity. And uh, creating a business model through a critical mass that then makes it accessible, makes the garment accessible, makes it an accessible price. If we look at uh, mud jeans, for example, in the Netherlands, which is one of the most established uh, clothing leasing models, those jeans are still really expensive. And uh, I think to lease a pair of uh, mud jeans, it's still sort of the whole cost will cost you about 120 euros, which, When you can buy a pair of jeans in the supermarket for 10 euros, that's still, you know, there's a huge difference there. But um, the the owner of, of Mud Jeans is really aware of this and talks a lot about increasing the consumer base. The more consumers get on board with that leasing model, then the cost will start to go down and make it more accessible to the consumer. But also growing that customer base. So it's still about a critical mass of consumers that uh, enable a business model to work, but it's about that systems change from uh, where those resources are placed and keeping those resources in circulation because this is the... This is the challenge for society, and this is where we have this issue of so much fossil fuel, polymer based material being extracted, the the fossil um, fuels being extracted, the chemicals being manufactured that create this pollution. But if we increase the quality of our product and reduce the amount of production, but increase the Accessibility. So if that, sorry, I'm not explaining this very well. Sorry, Nick. If we have a coat that is worn continuously and designed to be continuously worn, a garment that, if you buy a really well designed, beautiful luxury coat, it'll probably cost you or I maybe £600 or €600. Euros. Um, for something really beautifully designed with luxury fibre from say wool or cashmere. But if that, but how many times in that lifetime of the coat will we wear it? But if we were to share the use of that coat, then it would be used, uh, continuously throughout its lifetime or used, uh, more throughout its lifetime.
0: But would the brand accept selling only one-fifth of the coats because people were sharing it so much? Surely they'd be losing out massively.
1: Yeah, so then they have to think about their business model. So because if that coat is being continuously shared, then it needs to be cleaned, it needs to be maintained, it needs to be professionally supported. So the brand then needs to offer different services for that product to keep that product in circulation. So it then creates new industries. It needs to be repaired. It will need to be maintained. It will need to be repaired. Therefore, we need uh, new uh, models of um, labour that repair the coat. So companies then, at the minute, the model is designed so that they do one thing. They create a product, have a supply chain, manufacture it, produce it, retail it, sell it on to the consumer. End of story. no responsibility for the product. Brands are beginning to do takeback schemes so they can experiment with the fiber but they don't there is no responsibility. We are having extended producer responsibility coming in in the EU but um, of course that doesn't uh, challenges with the UK, but also with clothing we're not really clear what that means yet. And so, in reality, the consumer has responsibility at the end of life. Whereas, if we have a new brand model where the brand is showing its sustainability credentials by saying, we will take care of this product for you, and then we will move it on or we will circulate it, then it's a partnership, it's a collaboration, it's a collaborative model of production and consumption. At the minute, there is no collaboration. And that's where the business model stalls.
0: But I imagine this would be, there are certain companies that might be more on board with this than others. Um, Your typical fast fashion outlet where the business model is basically selling millions and millions and millions of very, very, very cheap garments. Uh, there's no mileage there in having some sort of service deal or something that actually meant that their garments were intended to be worn more than once or twice. But I can see that more high-end companies might be more on board with this. I'm I'm still struggling to see the advantage, though, of of leasing a pair of jeans. That seems more like a sort of advertising gimmick or something, but maybe I'm just very, very sceptical.
1: Yes. Do you mean um, leasing from the consumer perspective or uh, for a business setting up a leasing model?
0: Well, for the business setting up the leasing model, it's obviously that they can make more jeans because more people will want them. But from a consumer perspective, I can't imagine leasing a pair of jeans, but I mean, where's the
1: advantage? Yeah. So in terms of the advantage, Again, this is where the research is so important because as consumers, we don't stay the same all the time. We move, our body changes shape, we go through different stages of life, we go through different stages of fashion, we think different thoughts every day. Therefore, whilst a pair of jeans is seen in some respects as a, a garment that evolves and grows with us and becomes part of us. It's that sort of design icon of 501s that have, you know, really um, morphed into our body shape. And, yep, that does exist. But there is a whole uh, industry of cheap jeans out there that don't last. And perhaps we're trying to... um, Accommodate the product when our shape has changed, our age range has changed. So the idea of for the consumer is about a product that adapts with them who they are. They are not having to force themselves into a product. They have a a pair of jeans that say is a skinny jean for 12 months, maybe 24 months, if that's the fashion then, but then the next uh, season it's a flare or a a book cut and so then they can send that back. And then uh, I think they get a voucher if they they want a new pair of jeans. And so that fiber, that textile is then circulating, goes back into a new pair of jeans and they don't have the burden of storage because storage and storage of clothing is a huge issue for the consumer. And just to give you an example, in the UK, we have a huge moth epidemic at the minute. And a key issue with moths is that moths love natural fibre. And whilst they're, it's not an issue really for cotton, but it's a real issue for wool and for uh, wool garments. And moths, uh, so for example, historically, Uh, And I had this experience myself where I bought a vintage wool garment in a charity shop and it was beautiful and I really loved it. And I didn't notice the little pinholes on the in the rib and I brought it into the home and it still had the labels on it. Actually, it was a it was like a 1950s beautifully fashioned, fully fashioned knitwear and it still had the labels on and it smelled fine, everything about it looked perfect and so I didn't wash it and I put it in my drawer and I forgot about it and I think it was around spring I maybe bought that uh, jumper and then uh, by the autumn I went into the drawer and I had a moth epidemic and it had eaten the larva, I had eaten not only through the new jumper but through all my beautiful cashmere all of the other garments in my drawer because I didn't realise they were there not only that so I then got rid of all of the knitwear and I got rid of everything else that I saw as potentially challenging, any natural fibre, any wool fibres what I didn't think about was my carpets and my household (laughs) in uh, um, soft furnishings and so by the next spring, when I was cleaning the house and we pulled back the uh, the sofa and the chairs, carpets completely eaten alive by moths. And so it's a huge expense. And it was this idea that the consumer, unwittingly, I'm sure, had passed on this garment to a charity shop, which i then bought and it then completely contaminated my whole house. And what we see is that um, consumers are spending up to 90% of their time indoors. And so this is creating more debris. Um, moths love the, the keratin and the natural vibe, uh, natural properties in our skin and our hair. Um, we're shedding skin all of the time. And perhaps people, whilst are spending more time indoors, they're not necessarily cleaning. As much as perhaps they used to, so we get this build-up of absolutely um, delicious feedstuff for moths, which then creates this whole uh, ecosystem for for moth production in the home. Uh, so that's just one example of where uh, there is a, there is a challenge in terms of circulating. Um, product, but also storing product. And so the more we have things circulating, the more we have them out and in use and maintained, repaired, um, then the more opportunities there are to um, avoid uh, these sort of uh, contaminated situations.
0: There are rumours that the natural fibre industry have been including moth eggs with vintage clothes to drive sales of new natural fibre garments. Do you care to comment?
1: Wow. No, uh, I've certainly not heard that. And uh, I think we have a big enough problem uh, without that occurring. I, I think... What uh, what I see is uh, in cities like my own, which is a very old traditional city, Edinburgh, where there are um, a turnover, say, of an estate, of uh, an elderly person, where perhaps they've um, moved on from their home or something else has happened. And that whole wardrobe has been um, sent to the charity shop. And whilst I think the key thing with um, clothing disposal is whilst we have new technologies evolving, it's still a very manual system. So when something is donated to, to a charity system, it's still about the human eye detecting whether something is clean or dirty or has a, 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 a contaminant in it. Um, that idea of um, yeah, no, I, I haven't heard that at all, Nick. And that's really interesting.
0: I just made it up, <laughs> just just to throw a little conspiracy in there. To... <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was just thinking, oh my god, like we, you know, we've had this problem with moths for the last three thousand years. Uh, that it's been ever since. Yeah, we've had clothes in our home. Moths have really um, enjoyed that um, interaction or the feedstock, the, the feedstuff that comes from that interaction between consumers and clothing. and and these are key challenges when we are thinking about increasing the circulation of a product. But the fact that um, in the for example, in the UK alone, they say that up to forty percent of the average wardrobe is never worn. And if that clothing is never worn, then and then it gets passed on. In the meantime we've had to create all this new clothing. So we continuously have to keep that feedstock of clothing going when we already have clothing out of circulation. So it's about how do we create how do we work with the industry? How does industry and consumers collaborate together to keep clothing in circulation? And you know, key, designers are key. Designers are key to creating a product that is versatile, that is modular, that can adapt with consumers, that can be moved around. As I said, it's like a, that really exclusive winter wool coat that can be passed on, but needs that maintenance. But equally, it could be a, a, a much cheaper garment that, um, through clever design of materials, clever design, um, of, of the whole product design can be versatile, can adapt with us.
0: I'm sort of thinking that a big part of the problem here is the fashion aspect, because as you mentioned with the least jeans, uh, once the bootcut style went out of fashion, everyone would ship back their least bootcut jeans and what the tapered model or whatever. Um, so you'd suddenly have all those jeans coming back in because all over the place, the fashion had ended. And it should end. Bootcut jeans are horrific. (laughs) Um, But the advantage of them all coming back home would, of course, be that the company dealing with them knows exactly what they're put together of, the fabric mix of them, and would then be able to actually recycle them because they've not got containers of random Stuff coming in, there are it is their own genes coming home, which they have made in a specific way with specific fabrics and fibers and not So, if that model actually worked, there would be an advantage there.
1: Definitely, in terms of if you have a company who have a whole, who have evolved and developed a whole processing system, and we do see these mega brands uh, like. Um, H&M, and Moritz, who are investing in this technology, they are experimenting, they're trying to um, work out how they can create this processing of um, returned post-consumer clothing and make it into a new fibre. Uh, whether that's part of their greenwashing strategy rather than their sustainability strategy uh, is um, is, a, is a key question. Uh, because, um, whereas we see with a, again with another brand model like Mud Jeans, we see that um, they are also doing that, taking back the jeans, they're being able to process them. Again, the, uh, I think Bert Van Zorn has been very open about the challenges around um, making a hundred percent reprocessed or recycled denim jeans. And what we see is virgin uh, cotton being used and recycled cotton together, so we get a blend. And that, again, reduces a certain percentage of pressure on new virgin resources. And so it's working towards a a, a better um, system whilst trying to maintain the quality of the garment, because at the end of the day, it still needs to be about the quality of, of the garment. Is it wearable? Is it durable? Is it? Does it look good? Does it feel good? All of these uh, things are so important in terms of, as a consumer, whether we're going to use that product or discard it. And it's that idea of, yeah, if you could just bottle um, that design classic, like a pair of Levi's 501s, if you could just bottle that, what are all the elements? What were all of the elements of that product? That meant that we've used it for so long, or or that leather belt that you have had your whole, you know, baby adult life, and you've been able to when you've perhaps put on a little bit of weight, um, you've taken it right to the last loop, the last hole, or you've lost weight and you've put an extra loop, an extra hole in it. But what was it about that product that made you hold on to it that um, other products? we discarded. So of course we need to make sure that the recycled material, recycled fibre of a garment uh, still makes sure that that product, that garment feels good and, and is going to be used. And these are all questions I think that the whole industry is working through, but not fast enough and not everybody's on board with it.
0: It sort of comes back to the the sort of uh, two sides in it though it's the the makers the companies and and the consumers the wearers uh, you were talking about the website you'd been working on um, some years ago love your clothes and i'm a bit curious about that because that has been part of the buy better buy less uh, buy stuff you really love uh, buy stuff you wear a long time uh, basically buy stuff that isn't fashionable that's outside of fashion because then you won't be sort of wanting to shift it as soon as the fashion ends for it. Uh, I mean, making clothes that we might actually want to wear for a long time. I realized there wasn't actually a question there but (laughs) it sort of comes back to as consumers making us want to stop buying so much because that is a huge part of the problem the the retail therapy idea where you go out shopping because you're miserable and lonesome and your life sucks um, which was an idea that came from a film I think some 10-12 years ago and has been adopted by I think, brands as much as anyone because it's another incentive saying that it's OK, go out and shop. There's nothing wrong with you. It's retail therapy.
1: So it's taken that model of retail therapy and how do we get people excited and interested in the creativity of clothing? I think that's what... I take Nick from looking at you and listening to your podcasts. You're really passionate about clothing and your passion has uh, taken you to where you are now with this this really long-standing, fantastic podcast. And if you could bottle what it is that you're really interested in in terms of clothing and uh, style, it's probably style over fashion, uh, and how do we take... Take that, take what you feel and make it a common objective. How do we take that idea that clothing becomes a real interesting part of your life, not just that retail experience or the idea that goes back to what I was saying about what is it that we're actually buying? What do we think we're buying? Do we think about what we're buying or do we just see it on the rack, maybe try it on or online, we're not trying it on, we're looking at the idea of the garment. All the time we are buying an idea of a garment. We are buying an idea of what we think we will look like in that garment and we are continuously disappointed. And this is the challenge of understanding consumer behaviour and that relationship between the consumer and the garment what's going on there how do we um build in excitement and creativity in clothing use as a fashion unpacking and rethinking what we mean by fashion first of all just stop using the word fashion that is the is a key issue when we talk about clothing when we talk about clothing systems starts to break down and it makes this product clothing much more egalitarian, egalitarian because it then applies to everything we do in life when you think about fashion you don't think about your underwear you know you might think about different styles of of female underwear garments over the decades and different fashions but we really don't think about that we think about the everyday functionality of our undergarments, and we see that <clears throat> as a functional element of our wardrobe. We might have our favourite pair of underpants for luck. We might have a pair of favourite underpants for a date, but uh, essentially, that's a functional part of our wardrobe, which is very different from when we think about uh, a garment, um, like buying a new sweater or buying a new dress and what that's going to say about us as an outer layer. And so, but do we really think about it? We, I think it's our consumers really understanding enough about what they're buying, because when they get home, as I say, they get disappointed. And in that disappointment and that uncomfortableness with a garment, that's when it becomes discarded or not worn very often. And so, If we have brands that are willing to take that uh, next step of really being an experiential store, how do you work with consumers to give them a clothing experience? Whether it's about ownership, rental or leasing, it's about getting involved in that product. Just like uh, how we've managed to evolve the food movement, how we've managed to evolve consumers to be interested in what they're eating, be it still a very, um, you would say, a very sort of, I don't know, middle-class uh, evolvement in terms of the affordability of a sustainable organic diet. No, you know, we're not there yet in terms of food equality, but we're way off it in terms of clothing. Uh, understanding clothing equality in terms of understanding what we're buying. What are these brands? So that we can hold the brands to account, so that we can say, do you know what, actually, you're not you're not delivering for me here. Everything in this store doesn't work for me, but I've been buying from you for years because uh, I think I'm interested in fashion. I think I'm buying into fashion, but actually, I don't know what fashion is but I know what clothing is because I wear it every day. And so changing the narrative, working with society, not with the brands, working with society to change the narrative so that they hold the brands to account. Because at the moment, we are such passive consumers in this linear economy and more and more you hear people say, but I don't have time. I don't have time to think about that. I just go and I buy something because... Uh it's, it's just, that's what my kids need. They need clothes to go to school. My um, partner needs um, a new uh, jacket. So I just, I, I bought this whilst I was doing the food shopping. And so we've become really disconnected. Whereas 50 years ago, we would have been, we would have had to have been involved in the repair, maintenance, and longevity of our clothing.
0: I think what you're saying there about classes is very important because it comes down to the the clothes you need for the utility value, the ones you need to stay warm, uh, dry, safe, which is really the sort of baseline there. And then you could start if you have more resources you might buy something which you think looks good or you'd actually like or is fun or has some other function you think it, or some pleasure it might give you and once you get really far up i mean you'd be looking at having custom suits made you'd be going to Savile row you'd be going to these haute couture shows and having something so there are obviously layers and layers and layers there
1: work into this. Exactly. And at the everything about it should be about creativity.
0: And I think they're probably not even on your radar at all, but the cosplayers are the kings there. They dress up because it's fun and they make their outfits themselves because they can and it's fun. And it's all a whole scene full of joy. <laughs> And there's very little large companies involved in it, as far as I can understand, at all. But it's all about having fun in your clothes, which you've probably made yourself, dressing up as cartoon characters, film stars, whatever.
1: I think that's wonderful. And I think if there was, say, an edu- education pack where a group like that went into schools and really shared the joy of clothing, not fashion, clothing. And from a very young age, really engaged children in what clothing is for. Yes, the aesthetic value, but yes, the functionality, the contents of the clothing. The idea that you're really aware of what you're wearing. You're really aware of how it makes you feel, of what, uh, what it's, how it's impacting on you, your skin, your emotions, because a lot of the time, um, and I'm sure there are clothing psychologists out there that, that we could have a better conversation with about that, but that idea of the relationship with how you feel and how clothing impacts on how you're feeling. If you're wearing something that makes you feel uncomfortable or excited or is aligned with your mood, uh, is really important to the longevity of a garment whether you will keep that garment or not but it's also really important for your welfare if you put on something every day that just maybe makes you feel uncomfortable but you can't afford something else or you don't know you've become so disempowered uh, by what you're wearing that you've just given up and a lot of people um possibly feel like that that they just they're so confused so confused fashion is not for them functionality is what they're all about but even then they don't really know what they what they need and so that idea of your cosplayers going into schools or or just going into supermarkets just being on the street sharing their joy for clothing and um engaging with people and Persuading people that you're not just, um, you know, you're wearing a set of products that are representing you. And are you happy with that? Would you like something? You know, if you are, tell us about it, share it, get these conversations going about what we're wearing and why, and trying to understand as society what we actually need and want, and then being able to create this movement that goes back to the brands and says we are not happy with this, and we are not, uh, we're not going to engage with you anymore.
0: It is interesting to see how, I mean, you've got the Great British Sewing Bee, which has probably done absolute wonders for making people see that it is possible to make stuff yourself. Um, I mean, they've been guests on on the podcast. I think that's I think they sold. A million sewing machines in the UK when that started up again but we also had um, had Molly Martin on the podcast who um, who does repair workshops with toast so things happening there both from a brand perspective and from well, a television perspective so that might indicate a, a larger movement in the population for uh, we, we now know more about how clothes come into being and how we might extend their life. And if that sort of knowledge been spread further than the sort of middle-class um, sort of people who go to those sorts of shops, then maybe we'd be on the way somewhere.
1: Yeah, I think the Great British Sew and Bee is a great example of the democratisation of making and the joy of making clothing. What we don't understand uh, or don't don't have enough uh, data about at the moment is how much waste is created from those projects that haven't gone quite right because uh, there's a lot of novice um, sewers out there or people who are, you know, I know how many projects I've started and not finished um, because something has happened. And so... There is a lot of work to do in understanding the difference between trying to make a whole garment and sewing on a button for maintenance. And I think that there is uh, the great joy of creativity, but the the challenge that we need to continue educating uh, consumers we need to continue uh, that journey and just because you buy it, it's like if you, you know, you need a license to drive a car, if you have a sewing machine, have you got all the skills to do that so that you don't waste resources, um, not just for the planet, but for yourself, because it can be quite costly. And so we do have lots of, you know, online resources and um, courses and things going on. But I think, there's just that idea that to jump from nothing to creativity uh, is where we need to get to when actually tiny, tiny steps of everyday maintenance are so valuable and have potentially more impact in terms of clothing longevity. And I saw that in my in my research with consumers recently. I worked with uh 30 households in in Scotland uh, going into the home. And what I can tell you about that, Nick, is that people are so generous in giving their, opening their door to researchers and giving me time to observe them and to analyse what's actually happening in the home in terms of clothing maintenance, repair and disposal.
0: that would be an interesting experience if you came into my home and started (laughs) digging through all my stuff. (laughs) Uh,
1: And I learned that um, in a certain, uh, I suppose I confirmed what we already know that um, people who are educated are more likely to um, repair, know how to repair their clothing because every household I went to had uh, a different story of, of maintenance and repair. But I'd really like to to continue that research in a wider socio-demographic so that I can really unpack uh, is this actually happening throughout society in the West or is it um, a, a middle-class phenomena?
0: I think it also comes a bit down to what, sort of stuff you're buying i.e. how much money you have to buy stuff because if you're spending more you're buying stuff that is more repairable and you know it's more repairable there's a very clear division between the people who buy say a wax jacket and realize that when it's looking a bit scruffy you can re-wax it because I think about probably 75% of them and this is a number I just pull out of thin air like most fashion statistics um, say 75% will either sell it or toss it out and would never even consider spending an evening getting all waxed up by doing
1: Mm -hmm. that. I think, um, going back to the Great Great British Sewing Bee, I think that's the thing I love most about it is when they talk about uh, the difficulty of working with some fabrics. And so, like a wax jacket... um, Okay, so you're going to maintain that with, um, say, re-waxing it or you might be able to, um, not necessarily sew it because it's going to be really hard, but you could put on a repair. You could sort of, um, what do you call it? Um, Like a gum, uh, like a repair kit. Like a patch. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I only speak one language, English, and I did lose it there. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, put on a patch. Um, but whereas if it's a polyester dress or a chiffon or something really fine, it's really difficult to work with, particularly if you have very limited skills and knowledge. And uh, like um, sportswear, leisure wear, most leisure wear is made out of um, acrylics, polymers, uh, lycra. That's really hard to repair. And whilst we see um, uh, YouTube. Uh, experts responding to that uh, repair experts responding to that putting little YouTube films on how to to darn your sports leggings you need to be looking for that, as a consumer you need to want to repair it in the first place, you need to know that it can be repaired and if the majority of the clothing we have in our wardrobe is made from these really slippery um, polymer fibres that aren't easy in the first place it makes the whole situation really challenging. And that's where we're going to sort of think back an industry and systems of at what point is a polymer-based garment for a short cycle of wear valuable as opposed to a natural fibre for a longer cycle of wear for for longevity. Um, And of course that... That sort of connects us to our common link, Professor Rebecca Early and the research at the Centre for Circular Design, um, doing a lot of research on on textile speeds, slow and fast speeds. And I, I think they were very pioneering in having that discussion at a time when everybody wanted to say, slow down, slow fashion, that's all we need. When in actuality, we've got to understand the... The life, the life cycle speed of a consumer, what is going on so that we can really understand when do we need a garment for life? when do we need a garment that actually is only going to serve a limited purpose? So is that the garment that we then discard and dispose of into an industrial closed loop or, or um, valorized loop? or is that the garment that we circulate to multiple consumers? and therefore we have other um, uh, considerations of of um, maintenance and uh, repair to think about but these ideas of of use and having a frank conversation about clothing use is uh, is not occurring We're, we've gone straight to res- responsabilizing the consumer again you know reuse repair uh, maintenance And whilst absolutely that is one solution um, and the consumer should have those skills, but it shouldn't be all on the consumer. And it is about understanding how we change the market.
0: Yeah, because I keep coming back to we have to make the makers responsible. If they're going to be making stuff and selling it, it has to be, well, good for the planet good for the consumer and also it has to have an end-of-life strategy attached to it because as you were saying with sports goods which are inevitably plastics um, and i think most people won't be darning their yoga pants because it's so cheap to just buy another one so what happens to the old one And also you have a certain type of person who buys lots and lots of stuff and sells lots of stuff and who's buying the stuff off them and what happens to it then. I know from from the menswear scene that um, men who like clothes do buy and sell uh, and not necessarily new stuff. We we buy very little new stuff but it's all sort of selling from one person to another and we get the, the joy of, getting something new and then we get the joy of <laughs> seeing it go out the door again but it's it never sort of seems to disappear it's always sort of floating around from chap to chap and that's fantastic circular.
1: and it's because I imagine these, these garments are really robust and they've been designed and manufactured in a really robust way from really quality fibre in the first place whereas if it was a low value uh, polyester shirt then I call it the grey tinge and and that's what I see uh, in the second hand market in polyester and it really distresses me in the sense of when I see a garment a high fashion garment that has been washed if you, if, if you wash a polyester garment, by the second wash, it's going to have lost some of its sheen. By the sixth wash, it's definitely got that gray tinge. See, it's a white, white shirt. And so that is something that you're not really going to want to circulate. It's probably starting to get body stains on it. Uh, and yeah, these are all sorts of, challenges for the critical mass, for the volume of clothing out there, not the select garments that we uh, are able to enjoy and circulate. And that's why I see that in the fast fashion market, young people who are really, um, I call them bedroom entrepreneurs, who resell on all these different websites and they might have worn a garment once uh and maybe not even washed it and then reselling it because it still looks good. It still looks the way it did when it was bought. But, uh so it's a kind of fast circulation, t- fast turnaround um, of this sort of, wear it once, sell it on. But that's because you're getting that garment at its peak condition. The next seller, again, it's going to have lost its sheen, it's going to have lost its... um shape because it was poorly produced in the first place and so it's how we begin to work with that and how does society work with it and how does design begin to solve that problem and how do we create with this remarkable material uh, you know a, a sort of um polymer based, Uh, material which is so versatile which is robust which has been a complete gift to society in some ways but it's just out of control now and has overtaken all these other incredible fibres that um, have always been a gift to society such as fleece from wool or or cotton or hemp um, uh, in a a bio. bioregenerative sense. And so, yeah, I I think I just, I feel like I just keep repeating the same sort of idea that uh, we really need to bring society together to understand what they're wearing and what the problem is. I think people know there's a problem and they see the problem, but they don't quite en masse Understand what where is the problem? What is the problem? Because thinking about my own research in the average family, the problems they're trying to solve are the different activities that happen in a household. So the different types of clothing that are needed for those activities, the different stages of life, um, the clothing requires, then the whole different categories of clothing, very different, um, you know, thinking about uh a household, um, yeah, undergarments for each each member of that household will be very different compared to, say, uh, going to a family party where it will be a completely different wardrobe again, but with probably that base undergarment. So we see a system there. We have a base, base garments, which are sort of the staple of the, family wardrobe or the individual's wardrobe and then we see these different layers of um, what's being worn and so but we don't think of it as a system we don't think about our wardrobe or what's going on in the household as a as a clothing system and I think if we began to shift the conversation to what is clothing in our lives what is the meaning? of clothing and i know that sounds very wooly and very um sort of philosophical but it's almost like we do need more philosophy we do need more clothing philosophy we do need more understanding um potentially yes that's a job for the academics to then work through it and and push out a new model at the end of the day for for debate but Really, it's about how we filter information to get citizens to act and to get citizens to act in a way that changes the system, that shows them they have the power. They have the power to say, this is not working for me.
0: I think the aspect of philosophy is, uh, is important and I don't think it should be restricted just to academics. I think every consumer is a philosopher, If only in the way you're standing there in front of a jacket and you're trying to convince yourself how much you need it. The pros and cons, pure philosophy really. But what you said about the problem was was interesting because I think it's hard to understand or hard to take in that something is a problem unless you also see the alternative. And I I notice I mean again back to this by better by less and I I go around and I see presumably sort of good brands making good products. And I'll go and I keep, I mean, I'm always sneaking look at the tags to see what they're made of. And I can spot 10 metres now whether a tweed coat is wool or whether it's some degree of polyester. And It's so rare to find something that is pure wool. But all these good brands are making it with 70% polyester, 50%. And then basically saying look you can buy this coat we won't be able to recycle it the only thing we can really do is incinerate it or landfill it when you're done with it is that okay for you as a consumer do you still want to buy it but then again if they don't also have a full wool version you don't see the one you're looking at as the problem because there's no alternative solution
1: so we do see new technologies for, um, for blended uh, fibres evolving that will separate that wool and polymer together because the thing is, there is a real value in uh, a wool polymer uh, blend of, of garment in terms of uh, the robustness, uh, making that garment more robust. So there are arguments for a, a blended garment, a blended uh, fibre for for a garment. But yes, it's not ideal. But it goes back to my... Um, sorry. There, there, I, there yeah. probably
0: are arguments for it, but have you ever tried to kill a Harris Tweed jacket? Those things last forever. <laughs> you can't... <laughs> well, I mean, what I
1: was going to say was it goes back to the moths. So, yeah, moths definitely... Um, Can't kill it, it, but they can.
0: They they can have (laughs) a good go.
1: So what we then have is um, uh, we have uh, a wool polyester say on a carpet because that will um, you know, and if it's treated, it will um, detract from the moths. It will um, prevent moths from uh, because they don't like the poly the polymer. Yeah. But that's not the solution, um, and the solution. But if we want that wool carpet to survive, do we need to impregnate it with more chemicals or more natural uh, chemicals that will, um, because we've had this problem of moths for 3,000 years, so uh, how do we engage people in understanding? Is it about shaking your clothes? Is it about making sure your space is really clean and dusted and that you are get rid of this foodstuff that will attract the moths. Um,
0: In some cases, I'd suggest just opening the drawer now and again and peeking behind your sofa.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 I know, I know. It is, it's all, it's very imba- it is very embarrassing when you start to talk about these things. And um, yeah, it is, it's an area that from a citizen perspective, from a societal perspective, this idea of clean, dirty, polluted, unpolluted, contaminated is, is the key sort of philosophical lens that I look at society because if we want more circulation of product, we have to break down those barriers of understanding of what is acceptable, what is going on in the head of the consumer. And you've just described it beautifully there when you're looking at a garment and all of the different elements that you're thinking about uh, and it, it, this this idea of circulation, we need so much more information about that relationship that we don't have, and that can create a whole industry in itself, a whole new industry of knowledge, of knowledge sharing. That if brands were willing to take the risk, I mean. Uh, h H&M, they have a whole area on their website for repair. But as we talked about, what is the consumer actually repairing and maintaining? Are they repairing and maintaining uh, a garment of quality that, or are they just patching something up that isn't actually very good for them? And so if we understand what it is that uh, we, are, we need to do, we need to circulate, we need to dispose of quickly and regenerate then we can start to build those systems but we need a whole consumer or citizen change mindset change and in order for that to occur we need to create the skills um, uh, skills platforms in order to do that and just going back to your uh, colleagues who dress up, the did you call them the COS? Cosplayer Cosplay.
0: The costume play.
1: Costume play. The idea of costume playing and, and taking that into schools or anywhere. Partnering up with brands and creating, um, dressing up centres in, uh, in department stores rather than cubicles for trying on a garment. When it's about play. It's about creativity. It's about engaging people, not just in consumption.
0: It just struck me that we've kind of, as we grow older, we've forgotten what happened to our clothes as kids, because I see there's a vibrant amount of trading in kids' clothes. First, you're, you're, I mean, they'll inherit clothes from each other and then relatives will get them. And these clothes are sort of making their way around families and communities until they're basically not, much left of them but that is a very circular thing i mean then then they're just rags or (laughs) something but for grown-ups adults that's not so much
1: done so that's really interesting so again it goes back to that what are we doing with clothing and what do we want clothing to do and the idea that because we do see, um, in fact, early adopters of leasing models were those um, new startup companies that were, say, uh, leasing uh, baby clothes or early stage of life um, children's clothing, say, uh, a, like a suitcase of clothing per month, depending on the um, uh, how what stage of the child. Uh, child's development uh, they were at, and this enabled uh, families to not stockpile baby clothes or to buy a lot of clothes that were only going to last a few months as the child grew. And that is really exciting. I think that's really exciting. There you have a problem. The problem is that children grow very fast. How do we circulate clothing, um, building in those traditional models, those already established family models of handing down. Instead we have these leasing models where uh, garments can be circulated to X amount of families before they are then downgraded potentially resold or if they are badly soiled that then that fibre is, is um, sent off for for processing. But it's the idea that the garments are kept within a business that or, or sent back to a central point where someone else has control. The business has control over that critical mass of um, textile. Whereas at the moment, that clothing is just, um, you know, if children grow really quickly and the clothing is in the family home, it just gets dispersed to different disposal elements, which could include the bin or handing, handing down. So we have this system at a really critical age um, and stage of life, which is quite different from uh say another age range of life, like where we're not growing so much. Perhaps mentally we're changing, but physically we're potentially staying the same for a relatively uh, lengthy period of our, our life so that we can have that garment for longevity, we can have that um that winter coat that we absolutely love that Harris Tweed coat that we invested in for life and we are hopefully going to, the challenge we then have is if we put on weight or we lose weight, we change shape and therefore the garment then doesn't live up to our idealised standard of how we want to look in it, um, which again comes back to that argument of more transience, more circularity of of clothing, uh, based on how we are our lives are changing. But in in a sort of hypothetical way, it's really. Understanding these different stages of life, when do we need clothing at a fast cycle of use as we grow fast? Definitely fast cycles of use. As we get older, what do we actually need clothing for? We need different. Uh, we have fantastic um, workwear. Our companies who use uh, workwear leas- leasing systems, where their uniforms for staff are leased. Rather than owned, so that when that um, clothing gets to a point where it's no longer suitable for, say, um, a front of front of house or public facing, or even comfortable for the employee to wear, then that can be gathered up and sent off to the company who manage uh, that that workwear. So if we apply that model to um, to the household wardrobe. Then we see, uh, if I think about the amount of things, t-shirts, t-shirts or undergarments or socks that seem to pile up because we don't know how to dispose of them. And so we pile up all this stuff because we're not sure, um, that we potentially might need it again or we don't know how to dispose of it or it's maybe sort of past its best in our, from our perspective. So we're sort of evaluating all the time, but we're the experts on how that garment was used. We're not necessarily the experts on the next stage, the next uh, life of that garment. And so that knowledge, once the garment gets moved on, is lost.
0: Can I make an interesting point about um, the similarity between the children and the workers who wear the least outfits I think that comes down to the reason that works is, is because the fashion aspect has been taken out of it they have given no choice there's no personal preference uh, a baby doesn't care what he wears and if you're an employee you wear what you're given but if you're not any of those you do have a, a preference you do have a wish there's something you want to convey which makes it trickier for the same model to work for for everyone.
1: Exactly. So then we have to think about another model, different models, investigating what are consumers doing and what do they need? What do they want? But we've used a certain model to solve a certain problem because what I see happen is everybody, like in the space, it becomes just one big problem. One big problem of this climate crisis and clothing as a, a whole industry and product of use being a critical problem. And when you look at it like that, it's it's head exploding. It's just like, what are we going to do? And what I uh, would like to see is more compartmentalizing of the of the challenge and making that challenge uh, a. A design problem is a design problem. It is a societal problem. But if we break it down by understanding what's actually occurring in our life just now, and where are the challenges? So why do we have so much clothing in our wardrobes? What are the types of clothing that are in there that we're not using? Is it uh, workwear? Like so, if our if our um, is it our everyday attire, or? Is it our social wear or is it our gym kit? Do we have loads of gym kit that we've worn to a certain point and then we've just shoved it to the back of the wardrobe and we've bought new gym kit? So have we got a whole pile of um, polymer at the back of our wardrobe because we're not sure what we're doing with it or we're not sure what to do with it? So what is actually going on? Why is... Why are um, aliens, alien insects getting into our wardrobes in the first place? What's allowing them to breed in there? Is it because clothing is dormant? And why is that clothing dormant? And then if we look at that garment and say, Oh, I've had that winter coat for the last 12 years and I've only worn it 10 times because I always found it too heavy. And it goes back to that, well, How would you give consumer choice in the first place? How would you uh, open them up? I think that's the great thing about the jeans leasing system. It gives you the opportunity to try it out. You're not committed for life. You commit to one um, uh, agreement, but then it might not work for you. And so at the end of that agreement, you can keep the jeans or you can send them back, but you've tried it out and you've decided no. I want to keep my jeans for life. Whereas uh, with other garments that you're realising are a burden, not just on your um, in terms of not serving a purpose, but they're also taking up space in your home. Then that's about not just problem solving what you're what you're wearing, but problem problem solving this issue of space and lack of space that consumers are facing more and more.
0: I might be missing out something. I'm I'm just looking at the side here on the leasing arrangement that the jeans company has. And it looks to me that you pay €9.95 per month for 12 months, after which payment stops, and the jeans are yours. So it's not really leasing, it's more um, partial payments, until you've actually paid what the jeans cost to start with, mm. and then they it, offer to take them back for recycling if you don't want them anymore.
1: Yeah, and I think they offer you a, a discount on your on your next pair. It's maybe not clear on the website. Oh, that's
0: sneaky marketing. That's uh, that's uh, big fast fashion brand marketing there. <laughs> <laughs> I won't get into a massive discussion here. I still think the jeans leasing model looks a bit sketchy. but, um, I, think but as a, I think as a concept,
1: are. yeah, I think looking at it as a concept, just having it out there as a conceptual model. And I, I, I think it's great that you're unpicking it and analysing it because that's definitely what we need to do.
0: What it means is that someone who can't afford 120 euros for a brand new pair of jeans, but is sort of mid expensive, can pay 10 a month. It's like renting a telly, it used to be in old days. But tellies were really expensive, I guess. So. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering where are the ads? I missed the ads! And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Garmology, and it's easy. And uh, yeah, let's continue on. There was something I was going to mention, but I've completely forgotten it now.
1: So keep going. (laughs) Yeah, well, I was just thinking about um, how many pairs of jeans the average person has. And again, this is something that we don't have enough data on. But um, some researchers estimate that we have up to 16 pairs of genes in our wardrobe.
0: I think some people might have two. Some people might have uh, more than 16. Um, there's a guy in Switzerland who has a whole house full. So yeah. you could let him skew the statistics upwards a bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, and there is a critical mass of, of cotton fibre that isn't always in use. And it means that if we are keeping all of that fibre, then someone we're just creating this need for more virgin fibre. I think where we're at with the leasing model is that we haven't got there yet in terms of enough customers reducing the price, reducing the monthly outlay, um, and increasing that circulation of the reused, the post, post-consumer post fibre that then enables a new product. And, uh, yeah, it is very early days for all of it.
0: I think, the, as I see it, part of the problem is that it has to actually be a sort of pay-to-use model. So clothes as a service, we have all sorts of things as services now, but clothes, I mean, they do wear... And the market for ones that have been rented to 17 people before you are more limited so I'm not sure but back to um, to how we can how we can deal with this massive problem and the complexity of it I think so much of the time it's the consumers that have given the responsibility for it now say if we said it's climate crisis there's too many clothes around how about if some of these fast fashion companies, I mean the really bad ones, said, "You know, yeah, we'll take responsibility. We're not producing anything now for the next six months. Uh, you'll have to be without your flimsy polyester shirt that you wear and you use once anyway. Uh, that's what we can do. But the chance of them doing that is, well, not going to happen. But that's what would really help.
1: Definitely." But again, in order for that to happen, it's about that citizen voice. And until there is pressure, and lots of people talk about legislation, and we need le- legislation, and there is legislation uh, to control the brands, but there can also be legislation to incentivize consumers. So, for example, um, if, we, if there was no VAT no VAT added to rental clothing. If we took the VAT off of renting clothing or took uh, the VAT off a leasing model, that would dramatically reduce the price for the consumer. And then that would potentially be an incentive to um, test a rental system or test a leasing system rather than going straight to retail. And so we absolutely need to legislate to uh, regulate and reduce the size of these global brands and their power. But we also need incentivization and incentivizing systems. Not incentivizing as in potentially where we have brands where if you take back your clothing, you get a, a voucher to buy more clothing. There's opportunities for different incentivization schemes. But absolutely, incentivization that reduces the cost, that allows the consumer to trial something. You don't know what you like until, until you've tried it. You don't know that you don't like it or you do like it or that it works for you or it doesn't work for you. So how do we enable uh, these systems? How do we uh, enable consumer access to these new systems to try them out? For example, the jeans leasing system. Could they offer? Um, how could they discount that? How could they dramatically change the pricing model to make it more uh, economic? To make it more of an economic uh, to make sense more economically for the consumer.
0: It is tricky to make a, a functional business model out of it. I mean, I can I can see the the pros and cons very well there. Um, I'm going to mention something now that I've been mentioning in every podcast this season because I had such an epiphany this summer when we visited a couple of really nice shops, the physical shop, and I realised that a huge part of the problem today is online sales. Because when you go into a nice shop and you see stuff, you go through such a process before actually spending any money. I mean, you look around, you might see something, you'll feel it, you inspect it, you'll try it on, you evaluate it, and then you actually have to judge: is it worth the money? Which is a whole process that actually slows down the buying of stuff. I, I hardly ever buy anything when I'm in a shop, because I almost never find anything that seems worth it. But online, when it's all nicely presented and glittery and shiny, and presented in a way that stimulates you to buy, it is so much easier to buy stuff. So if we just cut close down the internet, and with it TikTok and Instagram and all the other garbage, we could just
1: sort this problem out so easily. That's a really interesting uh, opinion and uh, question to pose. And I think we don't have enough information we know a lot about what consumers are doing. We know a lot about the amount that consumers are are buying, say a garment, same garment, different sizes because they want to try it on at home. So they're sending back the other two, and they might send back all of them. The um, this is a huge challenge, but it goes back to incentivization. How do you incentivize? that shop, that real shopping experience and draw the consumer away from online. It's, again, understanding what is it that consumers are getting from this online shopping experience that they're not getting from the high street, that they're not getting from their local boutique. A few years ago, I had the huge privilege to spend a month in Japan Um, researching circular economy, retail models and industry models. And one thing that struck me that was very different from the UK was in Japan, they don't have the charity retail model, but they have salvage, what they call salvage uh, stores. And that was sort of secondhand clothing stores. And they were so beautifully uh, curated. They were curated stores and they were a real shopping experience and you would have this beautiful uh, vintage store right next to a Mark Jacobs flagship store. And you were wandering around in your shopping experience and you really weren't taking in what was brand new, what was secondhand, because the whole experience was equal. And how do we create that in our own high streets. I look at my own high street in the UK and it is full of charity retail. And charity retail is an amazing uh, income generator for the most important causes uh, in society. But I would like to see that model evolve into a, that shopping experience. That makes it because there's still a lot of stigma attached around it. There's still a lot of stigma attached to buying second hand, and so it's how do we uh, make it the norm? How do we design in second hand shopping in actual environments to our lives? How do we make it more attractive to everyone, and how do we then sort clothing that is accessible secondhand or big supermarket, big retail department stores that are purely about a circular clothing model where you can go and rent, reuse, rent or repair clothing, have clothing if you don't want to do it yourself. Some people are needle They really don't want anything to do with um, repairing clothing, but they can go somewhere. They can build a relationship with a local tailor potentially in the same area where they can go and buy the most gorgeous uh, second-hand garments for a particular purpose. Or they can access, say, an undergarment leasing system where undergarments a small uh, part of your wardrobe that perhaps you go through a critical mass of every year and then generally we know that small garments like that go in the bin. But if we have uh, new access systems, but within a retail experience, an actual retail experience where we make this idea of clothing access, it's not clothing retail, it's clothing access, clothing circularity. If we make that a destination and we incentivize through tax breaks for consumers and incentivize uh, tax breaks for manufacturers and retailers then we can start to build this new culture of clothing um, consumption rather than because I think with the digital online space we have such an uphill climb there that I think we have to look at how we offer the alternatives how we work on the alternatives and how we really research how to do that, how what consumers need and what will drive them, what would drive the consumer to a uh, um, whole clothing experience. How do we create, how do we use digital technology in, in an actual space? How can we use a changing room area to support someone to try on a whole outfit, create a whole virtual story that would demonstrate how that outfit is worn in a certain situation, how it's going to perform, so that you're offering more than the digital online space because you're having having an interactive experience. You have your uh, actual physical garment, but then you're thinking, how is this garment going to perform And so you have technology that could demonstrate to you how this garment could perform. So, of a day, you're having a whole experience. I really relate to what you're saying, Nick. I love that. I love a day of window shopping, of really researching what's going on out there, and knowing myself that I don't actually need anything. I probably just need the fix of being in a clothing environment. I just need the fix of touching, feeling texture, of looking at shape, of understanding where we're evolving with clothing. And uh, it's how do we enable that and convince people it's not all about how many bags you take home at the end of the day. And we could address the the, the age gap. Is, is it an age thing? Is it about young consumers doing this? But what I've learned is that young consumers are more likely to be these bedroom entrepreneurs um, selling on clothing, whereas uh, the more mature consumer is the ones that are more likely to be buying and hoarding. So how do we work with that? in in the retail space, in the the, um, actual retail space by learning what's going on in the online space and then saying, okay, how do we create a whole experience here? But at the same time, thinking about, right, but we don't all have time to go shopping. You know, it's like a pastime. Uh, That idea of going window shopping, it's a bit of a hobby. Clothing is a hobby. Whereas The average household with two kids and a dog are just trying to manage everything. So what experience, actual experience, could we offer them that in in this retail space that enables um, that time efficiency that they need, but gives them that information and service that they need from clothing?
0: And on that note, I think we've come to the end, Lynn. (laughs) I can't think of anything more to add right now, and I don't want to detract from your last bit there uh, by saying anything more. Anything you'd like to add, mention, just in closing?
1: Mm. Well, I think I'd just like to say thank you, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, on your podcast show I think it's really amazing what you do and um, I really enjoy listening so thank you very much
0: I'm I'm blushing thank you very much and uh, bye-bye for now
1: bye-bye thank you
0: And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest. Just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.